Here's a hypothetical. You're hanging out with a friend and they mention something about being Canadian. This is just a neutral statement of fact, right? But let's say you respond to this information by insisting, no, you're not Canadian, you're stylish. From KERA in Dallas, this is Think. I'm Chris Boyd. Even if your intention was to be kind, you've just communicated your belief that it is not possible for an actual Canadian to have a good sense of style. And since you know your friend is from Canada, even if you refuse to acknowledge it, what they hear is that by definition, they are not stylish. If you think this is a ridiculous scenario, I'm with you. But honestly, it's no more illogical than insisting a fat person is not fat, but beautiful, as if those things are mutually exclusive. As it happens, fat people are constantly subjected to unsolicited opinions and inaccurate assumptions, including the belief that the shape of someone else's body is anybody else's business. Aubrey Gordon is here to talk about this. She writes under the pseudonym of Your Fat Friend. She is co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast and a columnist with Self Magazine. Her new book is called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Aubrey, welcome back to Think. Thank you so much for having me back. It's such a treat to be here. There are so many biases around fatness and fat people. And to describe that negative attitude people hold, you use the term anti-fatness. What is wrapped up in anti-fatness and why do you prefer that term to fat phobia, which I also hear people using sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. A number of folks use the term fat phobia to describe essentially the same thing, which is sort of the web of beliefs, policies, practices, attitudes that um, keep fat folks from meeting our most basic needs and being treated with respect and dignity, right, by individuals and institutions alike. Um, a number of folks do use the term fat phobia. It's fine. It conveys an idea. I prefer the term anti-fatness um, because uh, fat phobia is sort of links up with the idea that um, it is essentially like some kind of mental disorder, right? Or some sort of mental health condition, um, which uh, we know bigotry isn't really that, right? Bigotry actually just gets to be bigotry. How does anti-fatness intersect with ableism? Oh my gosh, in so many ways. I mean, I think the real sort of um, connecting concept uh, that can be really helpful in helping folks understand the connection there um, is a term that was coined in the early 1980s by a sociologist named Robert Crawford. And that term is healthism. And healthism is sort of a set of beliefs that leads us to assume that we can sort of visually assess someone else's health and our visual assessment of what they look like tells us how healthy they are or are not and that that uh, perception that we hold of their health is also a reflection of things like their work ethic, their tenacity, their worth in society, their value as a person, all of that kind of stuff. It is a term that in the years since it was coined, we have gotten really good at, right? We have gotten really good at healthism in this country. Um, and that shows up quite a bit in our treatment of fat folks, right? It is not uncommon for people to say and do terrible things to fat people, to comment on our bodies, to comment on our food, to withhold health care, to withhold jobs to withhold any number of things and say, this is just tough love and I'm doing it for your health. The health is the part that gives folks cover for what is otherwise bad behavior. And again, research tells us uh, 
experiencing anti-fatness is uniformly bad for our health. So it's also a little paradoxical, right? That folks are saying, I'm doing this for your health while pretty actively and materially harming the health of fat people. I mean, how does the rhetoric around healthy choices, which is everywhere, healthy mm-hmm. choices causing weight loss fuel what might in fact be unhealthy choices for a lot of people? Yeah. So I'll say a couple of things. One is this idea that healthy choices, quote unquote, healthy choices fuel weight loss um, has been disproven time and time and time again. We know and have known for years now that most of what determines our body size on an individual level lies outside of our control. We are much more influenced by things like our environment, our socioeconomic status growing up, the foods that we had access to, the spaces that we had access to, our family relationships, our experiences of discrimination like racism or like anti-fatness all influence the size of our body. So first things first, we've got to be able to let go of the idea that someone's individual body size is a direct result of their individual choices, right? Part two of that is we have sort of built up this kind of um, rhetorical empire around the idea that thinness and health are synonymous, right? We have really leaned into this sort of cultural idea that is not actually based meaningfully in research. It's not actually based meaningfully in any kind of scientific truth. It's much more a reflection of our own biases that we believe that thin people are necessarily healthier than fat people when quite a bit of research tells us that actually fat people experience some protective measures. Um, There is a concept that researchers refer to as the obesity paradox, which is why are some fat people uh, considerably healthier on a number of markers than some thin folks? We don't actually know, um, but we do know that Many fat folks are perfectly healthy and many thin folks experience health challenges and all of those folks ought to have space to speak from their experience. But we lead with our biases here and we lead with our assumption that, again, thin people are categorically healthy and fat people are categorically unhealthy. So one of these myths that you identify here is this idea that being fat is a choice somehow and fat people who don't like Mm. experiencing discrimination can make themselves thin. Research finds that people who believe this are the most likely to hold and act on anti-fat bias. What are these folks failing to understand? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question and a great one. There are some baseline assumptions at play there that are not actually, again, based in any real science. Again, this sort of presumption that fat people can and should, quote unquote, just lose weight is based in this idea that you just need to count calories or you just need to find the right diet or what have you. Um, Depending on the studies that you look at, uh, the lion's share of diets, uh, you know, usually in the 70, 80 or 90 percent range of diets or other weight loss efforts, um, fail to result in even short term weight loss. And almost all of them fail to result in long term weight loss that is sustained for more than three to five years. Right. Um, it's also worth knowing that whether diets are low fat or low carb or low calorie or restrict certain food groups, they all tend to same. Uh, they all tend to follow the same pattern, which is essentially that folks can lose weight in the short term, they regain that weight in the midterm, and they gain more weight in the long term. 
this attachment to the idea that any fat person can lose weight in the long term and therefore become a thin person is in direct opposition to what research tells us. And again, feels more like a reflection of our sort of cultural and societal biases that we have sort of decided to hang on to as a culture, um, rather than, again, anything that the literature tells us or anything that actual fat people could tell us about their experiences, right? As anyone who's been on a crash diet knows, it all kind of always goes the same way, which is you lose a little bit of weight and then you gain a bunch back, right? Um, but instead of sort of leaning into that uh, truth of our own lived experience and the lived experience of fat folks in our lives, we instead opt for, again, sort of a set of myths um, that are comforting to us in some ways. How common is it, Aubrey, for fat people to struggle with anti-fat beliefs themselves? The research there is not as strong as it could be, but it's worth noting that, you know, in the population writ large of the United States, we have astronomical levels of anti-fat bias. And most Americans are, according to their BMIs, overweight or obese at this point. So it's not unthinkable that quite a few of those would be fat folks as well, right? Um, so, I mean, I think the issue here is that regardless of our body size, most of us have some work to do on our own anti-fat biases. The American Academy of Pediatrics just recently issued these new guidelines meant to make fat children lose weight, which presumably their parents will be asked to consider and decide on. How common mm. is it for parents to be held responsible for the weight of a fat child? Oh, it's extremely common. Um, I think uh, things that many listeners may not know is that there is actually a history here in the United States, but also in the UK, also in a number of countries of actually um, holding parents uh, responsible through the court system for their children's weight. There was a, a case in the UK just a few years ago uh, wherein a judge told their parents, uh, the parents of these children, that they had raised exceptional children that were polite and bright and thoughtful and lovely, and they were just too fat. And the judge ordered that the children be removed from the home just for being too fat. Again, this flies in the face of what research tells us, which is that, like adults, uh, kids are also largely, you know, out of their own control is their body size, right? That, um, for many children, it is not a straight-up decision to get up every day and eat enough food that they get fat, but rather that genetic forces are at play, that socioeconomic forces are at play, that lots of things are happening in their lives that might influence the size of their body. Um, and in the absence of being able to reasonably hold children responsible for that, we get, you know, guidelines like the AAP guidelines, which... Um, double down on pressure, as you rightly noted, that usually lands with parents. Um, and uh, it is pressure that is sort of a road to nowhere. Again, we scientifically don't know how to make fat people thin, whether they are children or adults. Um, so we are once again sort of forging down this road of what feels increasingly punitive to me, right? Like uh, treatments that feel like we don't really know how well they work in children. We don't really know what the risks are. Um, and we are continuing to sort of hammer home this point because our assumption is that by any means necessary, a thin child is preferable to a fat child. And we're willing to exert that pressure both on kids and on parents. Aubrey, as great as exercise is for all of us, it turns out there's not a lot of evidence that exercise is a reliable method of losing significant amounts of weight. This is another myth that a lot of people hang on to. 
absolutely. There are there are lots of these. Exercise is a big one. Calories in, calories out is a big one. Exercise in particular, we know is great for your bone strength. We know it's great for your uh, heart health. We know it's great for your brain. And we also know that it doesn't actually reliably lead to weight loss in the short or long term, really. There are lots of reasons to exercise, but becoming thin is not is not really one of them. And you mentioned calories in, calories out. Talk about what we've learned about that. I went into looking into calories in, calories out, thinking that I would find a really strong scientific rationale um, for why that made sense. And what I found instead was a series of papers dating back decades pretty definitively debunking this concept. The concept of calories in, calories out really sort of is rooted in a a paper from 1959 written by an MD talking about how um, he believed that uh, one pound of human fat was equal to 3,500 calories. Therefore, if someone cut 3,500 calories from their diet, they would lose one pound of fat, and that math would continue uninterrupted ad infinitum, right? As many pounds as you want to lose, just cut another 3,500 calories. We know now that actually your metabolism downshifts when you start to restrict food. So your body starts burning fewer calories when it's getting less food to operate on, which means that that is sort of essentially a diminishing returns approach, right? That calories in, calories out will um, drop off in its effectiveness very quickly until it is not effective at all. Um, And actually one of the more recent papers, one from 2015 said, pretty point blank, this is such an unreliable tool, this idea of calories in, calories out, that it shouldn't actually be used to predict any individual weight loss or weight gain. Aubrey, you have been subjected many times to unsolicited advice about how you can lose weight, often from people who have never been fat themselves. So another myth you take on here is the idea that thin people hold some kind of obligation (laughs) to help fat people lose weight. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is um, a natural outgrowth of a culture that assumes that thinness is achieved through accomplishments, that a thin body in and of itself is an accomplishment, um, and that a fat body in and of itself is a failure, right? Um, It is often said in the world of fat activism that Um, We all know people who we are willing to accept are naturally thin, but none of us really accept that someone we know might be naturally fat, Mm -hmm. right? Like the flip side of that coin might also be true. Instead, we associate thinness with tenacity, with a strong work ethic, with doggedness, with rationality, with all kinds of character attributes that are really loaded. And we congratulate thin people on their thinness all the time right? If someone has had a baby and looks thin after having a baby, that person is usually showered with compliments. If someone starts a diet and starts to lose weight, we compliment that, right? Those are all ways of telling thin people that they have earned their bodies, regardless of how much effort they may or may not have actually put in. Um, And the flip side of that is that we assume that fat people are getting up every day and making you know, choices to eat extremely caloric foods and to not move around and to um, sort of do things in defiance of our own health. And that leads to this belief that there's almost a noblesse oblige, that thin people actually ought to go out and do almost a sort of missionary work to make fat people thin without really recognizing at any point that 
the start of that conversation is going up to someone who you think looks too fat and telling them that you think they look too fat, right? Which isn't exactly the great favor that we like to think of it as, right? Um, it's also worth noting that a vast majority of fat people experience anti-fatness every day, and the people that they experience it from the most are their friends and family and the people who are closest to them. And it often takes this particular form of folks you know, offering to be a gym buddy or get them a gym membership or go on a diet with them or check in with them or offer a food journal with them or any number of things, all of which might come from a good place, might feel like they are helpful, but as a fat person, it always just lands as I'm still too fat for this person and they won't accept me until I look the way they want me to look. You know, to this point about how common it is to praise people for looking thinner whether or not we have any idea of what's going on with their health, I saw this play out years ago for a guy who was dying of cancer when an acquaintance who yeah. hadn't seen him in a while told him he looked great. And it was unforgettably awful, frankly, for both of them. I mean, including yeah. the person who, who thought they were saying a nice thing and, in fact, pointed yeah. out that he clearly looked like he was dying. Yeah, I mean, listen, I have never gotten more compliments on weight loss than when one of the people closest to me in the world died. And I was going through a period of like, really terrible grief, and wasn't really able to eat. But I'll tell you what, a lot of people really thought that was great fodder for small talk and wanted to compliment me on like, what's your secret? Tell me everything. <laughs> and my secret was my grandfather, who I loved a lot, died, and I am really hurting, right? And I think, again, when we view all thinness as an accomplishment, when we view all weight loss as desired and the result of hard work, we also paint ourselves into a corner where we end up complimenting people for getting sick or complimenting people for going through a divorce or a big breakup or some other sort of major grief event in their lives, right? And actually, the more that we can add some nuance to our own understanding of other people's bodies and body sizes, the fewer of those kinds of interactions we all have to have. Because as you noted, that's not a picnic for anybody. Nobody wants to be in that conversation, right? Like, that is a tough one. That is a tough one. On the other hand, Aubrey, when somebody gains weight and we notice, etiquette tells us mm. we must not speak of it because... We assume it's bad news for that person and something they surely feel shame about. Yeah, absolutely, which is not necessarily the case for everyone, right? Uh, I feel like I have known a number of people in my life who were very, very thin and struggled to gain weight. I've also known people who had eating disorders and regaining weight was a sign of their recovery and actually a sign of their sort of health uh, increasing and getting better, right? Um <clears throat> Again, when we get in this zero-sum thinking of all fatness is bad and undesired and all thinness is good and desired, we end up making a bunch of really powerful assumptions about the people around us, and we end up hurting their feelings or, in some cases, causing them material harm because our own assumptions about their lives and their bodies are incorrect. Years ago, uh, I had a conversation on this show that has really stuck with me. And, you know, there is hmm. there are these conversations about... Uh, fat people being vulnerable to certain kinds of health problems. And some researchers looked at the way fat people tend to be treated by the healthcare community. And perhaps mm. those biases might play into health outcome discrepancies in the same way 
they often play out for people of color in this country. That is just something that I, I cannot forget because it makes such perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. This is a big one. I think there is a, a deep desire to believe and look, I would I would love it for this to be the case myself, that um, doctors are somehow unbiased judges of fat folks' health and that the healthcare system is like a neutral player in the world of fat folks' health. Um, you know, healthcare providers uh, experience a major amount of very important and very impressive, frankly, technical training. But part of that doesn't include confronting their own biases and certainly not around fat folks, right? Um, there is a 2003 study uh, that took place of physicians. In that study, more than half described their fat patients as awkward, unattractive, ugly, and non-compliant. Wow. And one third called those fat patients weak-willed, sloppy, or lazy. If you are looking at a patient and you have already decided just based on their looks that they are not going to comply with whatever treatment you offer, that's going to influence the kind of treatment that you offer that patient. And that's what research pretty consistently shows is that uh, fat folks get consistently significantly shorter office visits. We are less likely to develop uh, strong rapport with our healthcare providers um, who are, again, less likely to see us as worthwhile pursuits for their time, right? Um, and that also means that fat folks will, over time, delay or postpone care um, that is sort of vital to our health because we know that more often than not, we will just get a lecture about losing weight and our symptoms won't actually be addressed, which means that whatever healthcare issues that we're dealing with um, get worse and worse and worse over time because we're not being treated properly. So we've got a whole cultural script around being fat is unhealthy for you as if it is simply the fat cells on your body that are causing those health outcomes. But actually what we find when you start to scratch the surface is that there are a lot of social realities that come into play, particularly in the healthcare system, that actually um, detract from fat folks' health where they could contribute. It's a, it's a major area for improvement for sure. Have you learned anything useful that you can share about screening for healthcare providers who don't hold a lot of anti-fat biases? You know, I haven't seen great screening tools um, for uh, for healthcare providers with low anti-fat bias, but I, I have found in some of the research that even small interventions can make a big difference um, in healthcare providers' biases. Um, there is one study that showed that even a 15-minute video shown to medical students seemed to change their approach with fat patients. Um, it is also worth noting that um, there is some research that indicates that the experience of going through medical school and going through healthcare provider trainings seems to strengthen anti-fat bias in providers um, and in sort of people who are studying to be providers because they are so consistently seeing anti-fat bias modeled for them by mm. faculty and in part because they are instructed in methods of sort of dealing with patients, which is, you know, one of the leading guideposts for care of fat patients is you need to tell that fat patient at every visit that they need to lose weight, which again is like clear instruction for healthcare providers. And for fat folks like me, that usually just lands as why would I bother going back into the doctor's office if I'm just going to hear the same old thing and I'm not going to get treated for my symptoms. 
Okay, Aubrey, we should talk about BMI, body mass index. There's an, like initials that describe it. It sounds very scientific. It's used <laughs> as a kind of shorthand for a lot of assumptions about the ratio of height and weight and that sort of thing. Why is it less helpful for any assumptions we might make about a person's overall health than most of us have been led to believe? Well, a couple of things. I appreciate your, your point about saying it sounds scientific. It does sound scientific. And again, you sort of scratch the surface of this tool and it pretty quickly reveals itself to be scientific-ish, <laughs> you know, sort of in the neighborhood using the language, but not really doing the thing. Um, I think in order to sort of talk about the BMI, it's helpful to start with its origin story, which many folks may not know. The BMI was not actually developed by a healthcare provider, and it wasn't developed for use in healthcare provision. It was developed by an astronomer and statistician uh, who, again, never intended that tool to be used for healthcare. It's a simple ratio of weight to height that was developed using French and Scottish military conscripts in the 1800s. So if you are not a French or Scottish military conscript in the 1800s, this tool was not developed with you in mind, right? Um, for anyone who's not a man, for anyone who's not a white person, research has consistently shown that the BMI is actually a really bad predictor, not only of that person's body composition of their actual just body fat, but also of any kind of um, health outcomes that may be related to their body size. Um, it's worth knowing that particularly for fat people, the BMI is also often used as a barrier to care for um, transgender people who are um, seeking to access transition-related gender-affirming care. Um, surgeons may set BMI requirements for that surgical care um, that, again, scientifically, we don't know how to produce, right? Um, for those trans people, that is often life-saving care. Um, and being held up to what feels like a pretty arbitrary standard is a, is a real challenge and ends up um, harming fat folks' health um, considerably more than it helps it. And that's true of surgical care in many, many, many contexts, right? If you need a hip, hip replacement or a knee replacement, sorry, you got to lose weight first, even though, again, we don't know how to do that. Another myth that comes up here is this perception that no normal person finds fat people attractive. And this strikes me mm -hmm. as, I mean, obviously harmful to fat people, but also to the people of any weight who might wish to date them. Why do we believe this is true when there's plenty of evidence to the contrary? You can look at all kinds of couples and, and see that this is not true. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, genuinely, turn on any number of sitcoms and you will see, <laughs> you will see plenty of fat partners with thin partners, right? Like we have seen this in media, we have seen this in our lives, we have seen this many places. I mean, I think to me, this one speaks much more to an investment in sort of power relations than anything else, right? There is not a lot of meaner things that you could say to someone than no one will love you. And that is an invest, that is a message that we have really invested in sending to fat people. Um, again, data shows us time and time again that there is no shortage of attraction to fat people. And if you talk to fat people, we can all tell you there's no shortage of attraction to fat people. Um, the difference is that there is stigma attached 
to dating a fat person, especially if you're not a fat person, right? Um, so we're actually like creating a social context in which um, people who date fat people will, you know, be made fun of by their friends. They will uh, be the butt of jokes amongst coworkers, all kinds of stuff um, to sort of discourage that person from even associating with a fat person. Um, and again, the message to fat people is the most harmful message of all, which is no one believes that you are lovable, which is a, a pretty intensely harsh message to send to a huge and very diverse group of people. How did so many people come to associate fatness with emotional problems? Oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, this one is a is a fascinating one and a really tricky one. Um, I know plenty of fat folks who strongly identify as emotional eaters, plenty of fat folks who have experienced um, plenty of trauma, but this one really comes from um, a major trauma study um, that took place out of uh, San Diego out of a Kaiser Permanente facility in San Diego, where um, a doctor who was running a weight loss clinic um, that was prescribing fasting to his patients um, ran into a patient um, after she had left his program about a year later and she had regained a significant amount of weight. And when he asked her what happened, she said that she had been sexually assaulted. Um, and he realized that he hadn't taken trauma histories from his patients, so he went ahead and did that and found that um, more than half of the patients in his weight loss clinic had experienced significant childhood trauma. That over time has sort of morphed into this idea that fatness is actually an expression of unresolved trauma or that fat people are all collectively sort of emotionally damaged um, or are experiencing some kind of mental health crisis. Um, while that may be true for some fat folks, and again, I don't want to take anyone's narratives of their own experiences or lives from them, um, it is still straightforwardly biased to look at someone and based on their appearance, decide that you know what is going on in their mind, decide that you know what is going on with their brain, and decide that you know that person's trauma history, again, just based on their appearance. That is that is uh, straightforwardly pretty judgmental and something then that I think we could collectively stand to work on. Aubrey, is there something our legal system could do to address fatness as a source of discrimination? Oh, absolutely. There's a really well-defined playbook here. In the United States, our anti-discrimination laws um, work based on a system that we call protected classes. We say things like, no one should be able to fire you from your job or deny you a promotion on the basis of this list of characteristics. Things like race and religion and gender and uh, sexual orientation and any number of things, right? Um, it is worth noting that only two states in the United States protect folks from discrimination on the basis of their weight. Um, 48 states in this country um, allow weight-based discrimination as a perfectly legal endeavor. It is very straightforward. It is very clear-cut work, and it is work that we have done before to add to the list of protected classes that we think actually fat people should be protected from discrimination. Fat kids should be protected from bullying. That's not just kids being kids, right? 
Um, I think it's also worth noting that there have been some policy efforts in Congress um, to legislate a minimum seat size for uh, airplanes. That's another place where fat folks are frequently ejected from planes, um, left without, sometimes without a refund, often without a reschedule, um, sort of stranded in a city because we didn't match a particular airline's anticipation of what our size ought to be. Um, there have been some policy efforts there to regulate seat sizes. And again, I don't know a single person around who is like thrilled with the size of airplane seats. I think that's something we could probably all get behind. Clearly, this book raises some questions about the role thin people have in ending anti-fatness. What does it look like, Aubrey, to be an ally in this? Boy, oh boy, there are so many ways, big and small, <laughs> that folks can show up for fat people in their lives. I mean, I think um, the biggest way is to figure out how to show up more and more effectively for the fat people that you know and love. Um, asking folks for feedback on how you're showing up for them and whether or not uh, they want you to show up for them in those ways is a big part of that. I also think even much smaller gestures, like um, uh, I have a good friend who anytime we walk into a restaurant, that has booths and tables and high seating and, you know, short seating um, will let me pick where to sit because she knows that some booths with fixed widths will leave me with bruises or I won't be able to fit. Um, it's a really small and really meaningful gesture from that person. Aubrey Gordon writes under the pseudonym Your Fat Friend. She's co-host of the Maintenance Phase podcast and a columnist with Self Magazine. Her newest book is called You Just Need to Lose Weight and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Aubrey, it's such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks very much for making the time. Thank you so much for having me back. I always appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. You can subscribe to our podcast free where you get podcasts. Just search for KERA Think or listen at our website, think.kera.org. Again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Hi, I'm Alan Wong, and I make podcasts at KERA. Public radio allows listeners to learn every day and approach decisions with facts and neighbors with empathy. But this vital service is only possible thanks to the community that invests in it. There's real power in having access to these conversations and stories. Invest in them today at KERA.org and ensure the member campaign's success. Thanks.